to the lodgers and i feel weird sounding so chirpy after what if i did my job will have been a terribly horrific intro but here we are and uh i'm of course joined by kate redabom hello and this week we are here to talk about the next to last lynch directed episode of the original run and that is of course the seventh episode of season two lonely souls and it's a biggin' for reasons that are will be obvious to anyone who's watched the show before or anyone who has been watching up to date, you know, along with us and now has seen this. And so, uh, yeah, we're going to obviously there's much to discuss so many things, uh, which is, you know, one of the reasons that it's just us this week. I don't believe that will be the case next week. Just so everyone understands how this is going to work. At least this is the plan. Uh, so this week we are only discussing this episode. Uh, however, um, over the next three weeks, we are going to be discussing um, a lot of episodes. <laughs> and uh, that's because for our sanity and yours, dear listeners, uh, we will be accelerating the pace of uh, of this podcast when we discuss the second half of the season. Um, then we will be spending one episode on the on the series finale. Uh, one episode with uh, a very special guest uh, on Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me, and then, my friends, it will be time for the new stuff. Yeah. So I still, every time I think about that, I'm just like, what the hell? <laughs> this is a real thing that's happening, or so they I can't, say. I can't believe it. Like, watching one hour of of Lynch-directed Twin Peaks for this episode of the podcast was... I mean, it's mind-blowing. Like, this episode is amazing, and I can't... It's hard to wrap my head around the fact that there will be 18 hours of possibly equivalent material uh, coming out in the next little while is mind-blowing. Yeah, and we're all going to be expected to talk about it week to week and have, like, good opinions. (laughs) And I, I, I promise you now, there will be bad opinions. And that's why we're here, to hopefully not do that. Um, But, you know, we're... We're not there yet. I I guess I, I don't want to do too much more anticipating, but I just I couldn't help but think about that as I was watching uh, Lonely Souls for obvious reasons. Uh, we should also mention this episode was written by Mark Frost. Um, so uh, before we do get into it, uh, I understand that you've been you've been a, a, tw- a Twitter on the Twitters and wanted <laughs> wanted to mention something. Well, I have to admit, I did not do much of the work. Somebody else looped me into this conversation, which I'm glad that that happened. But uh, so I think. Uh, this might have been an episode in the, yeah, this was the, I think we talked about this in the uh, podcast episode for episode seven, the finale of season one, uh, in relation particularly to that shot of um, Jacoby's eye uh, as he's lying on the ground, the zoom into Jacoby's eye. We we talked with Ricky about this notion that there were uh, like a handful of shots throughout the series that were... um, looked like kind of video, like lower grade video shots. Uh, and I talked about them as video inserts. And the reason I did that is that there is a, there is a pretty common, um, tradition, like with television in the sort of nineties, uh, through even the early two thousands, um, where if they needed to do a quick cover shot or go back to film something that they had forgot or hadn't realized they needed, they would use video camera often. It was cheaper. Uh, and again, it wasn't noticeable until it was upgraded to things like Blu-ray and 1080p when all of a sudden you could really tell the difference between celluloid and video. So that's what I thought was going on. That does not appear to have been the case, however. Um, so I was looped into a conversation with, uh, I don't know this person's full name because it's not on Twitter, but um, uh, someone who was one of the co 
co-producers for the Blu-ray uh, box set that came out, uh, Missing Pieces, where they did like amazing restorations on the episodes and Fire Walk With Me, etc., uh, etc. Et so this guy worked on the restoration of it, and um, his Twitter handle is uh, at Doug, P-A, Doug, like D-U-G-P-A, I think. Um, and according to him, all of those sequences were originally done on film, but when they went back to do the restoration to 1080p, there were a handful that they couldn't find. So, like, they, you know, spent days and days and days, if not weeks, it sounds like, uh, searching through whatever these, this material they had for a whole handful of shots, and they just couldn't find the original celluloid. So it sounds like they were stuck having to use later generate, like something that, you know, when it had been broadcast on television or whatever, later there had been a kind of SD, like standard definition version of it that had been used, and that's what they had access to. And the the list of shots is quite interesting. Like, it includes Jacoby's eye, um, the giant light ball, which I don't think we've seen yet. I think that comes later. Uh, also, Briggs... Spoiler sitting... alert for the light ball. <laughs> exactly, there's a light ball. There's also Briggs uh, sitting in a, a chair of sort of fire later at one point. Uh, that was also one of these missing shots. Uh, and I thought this was really interesting. That's uh, either the pilot or like one of the two episodes after the pilot. You get uh, that shot where Grace Zabriskie like superimposes Laura's head on Donna's face. And in the version on the you know that we have access to now, it's much lower quality. But that was simply one of the ones where they couldn't find the original. Apparently, like the original negative that was used to do that. Anyway, I find this really fascinating because. Uh, as it turned out in this discussion with people, like, what is being shown on Netflix, and apparently also Showtime, because Showtime is rerunning these episodes right now, is definitely not the version that they put all of this amazing restoration work into. Like, it, the, the stuff on Netflix and Showtime is a version where they are using this kind of lower quality stuff. Oh, sorry, I'm not explaining this very well. So, it sounds like Netflix is using this one where they were uh, operating with the kind of video shots. However, some of them on the Blu-ray have been fixed. Like, they did have the celluloid to fix them. For example, Jacoby's eye on the Blu-ray is the original celluloid shot. So again, so there's a handful that they could never find, and those are even bad on the Blu-ray, but it sounds like there's significantly more that were left uh, as kind of worse quality on Netflix because they weren't using the, the nicer restoration. So again, just maybe a slight pitch for people who are true kind of like cinephile quality nerds that, uh, you know, <laughs> the Blu-ray and restoration and archival work like really matters. And so maybe seek out <laughs> the, uh, the stuff if you can on Blu-ray because not only with the video quality image, but also again, I think I've said this before, the color filtering is very different on their Blu-rays. It's much more, it's much truer to what Lynch had originally envisioned with like really red, uh, saturation. So. Anyway, wait a minute. Are you telling me that Netflix didn't do their due diligence when it came to video quality? Yes, I don't I'm even shocked. Yeah, I know. It's I. I actually, I wonder if anybody who's listening to this knows this. It, it probably like I don't know if they're using an HD version of like the the. I don't know, a DVD set or something. I don't know what it is, but clearly there's some other version of the show floating around where the colors have been turned down and there's this video stuff because Showtime is using it as well. So anyway. There you go. <laughs> the nerd check-in for anybody who cares about that level of, uh, of detail around this stuff. Kate, it's the Twin Peaks fan base. They all <laughs> care. I promise you. Or the vast majority of them do. All right. So without any more ado, I guess we should get into Lonely Souls. And... I mean, we're alerted to the fact that we're right back in, in Lynchland with him directing right from what I believe is the opening shot of uh, the Bookhouse Boys plus Philip sort of lined up 
uh, in you know this is for the credit sequence, so you've got the you know the the um, the supporting credits are happening at the same time. They're all lined up against the wall, and they've all got their their piping hot coffee. And the whole the the whole shot is probably about two minutes. The average shot length, I would guess, of this episode is at least double what it is for a standard Twin Peaks episode. It's such an amazing opening shot, and particularly, I shouldn't just say the shot, but the way that it, it works with uh, with performance and music as well. Uh, the way that it's it's a it's a sort of a whimsical moment, and then Philip cuts in with a with a with a repeat performance of his speech from the last episode, which is again a, a, another strange decision because you don't often get people repeating whole chunks of dialogue like that. It's almost like a previously on. Yeah, uh, and then you have the, the you know the theme swelling up, and it's uh, it's suddenly without a, without a cut, it's suddenly um, an ominous moment again. We haven't had a change of angle. We haven't yeah. had a change of anything except for except for Philip's speech and the music, and then he finishes the speech, and the music fades out, and it's right back to whimsy with no edit. Yeah, I I, I love that. I thought it was a great kind of comment from Lynch right away to sort of like. I don't know, a formal kind of humorous touch, almost this idea of, um, you know, Philip, it's, it's like as if Philip walks around under a cloud of like this ominous sort of backstory, but everybody else is just operating in this sort of very daily kind of like, you know, Coop is like, okay, so we have to get the warrant, right? And that's what the, you know, the music cuts out and all of a sudden you're just sort of back in this daily moment. I, I, that made me laugh out loud, actually. Yeah. And I mean, we've, we've talked about sort of the Lynch rupture before, but I don't think, I think this might be the only, uh, instance where the Lynch rupture is used in to like comic effect, mm, or like yeah. you know where he he is able to summon all, all these almost like cartoonish levels of menace only to like discard it seconds later again without without a cut or anything, yeah. and it's it's a it's a very like you know Lynch isn't often discussed as being a self aware filmmaker. In fact, he's usually described as being the opposite of being this very like you know instinctual you know, working from this almost primitive place. But yeah. this sequence feels not like that at all. It, it feels like like a wry set. And we should, we should remember also that Lynch is in the shot. Yeah. Uh, and I also noticed that his, that when his, when his name appears on the screen as having directed it, he's exactly center frame. <laughs> and I couldn't help but wonder if all this was intentional. That's funny. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I find that sequence to be many things but i think there's uh it, there's a sort of early maybe formal kind of gesture towards things that we're going to keep coming back to throughout the episode in terms of lynch's direction but uh you know maybe lynch's sort of commentary here on a kind of formal uh set of patterns and, and maybe politics even that other shows tend to fall into which is this idea of cutting space up into scenes right i mean you know, another director might take this scene where you would have all of the characters maybe standing in the same space, and yet you would be cutting into kind of individual uh, encounters between the men, right? And instead of that, Lynch very purposefully sort of has them all line up in this like plainer kind of way in front of the camera, and then they just turn to each other, and the dialogue itself kind of um, separates them into scenes. And you, you get this sense that it very much is these sort of individual moments, and yet Lynch just sort of refuses to take them out of uh, this kind of overall space, right? I mean, you move from Philip's kind of thing with the music to Coop. Uh, Gordon Cole has kind of two conversations. Coop talks to Hawk, and they just sort of turn to each other, and it moves down the line, right? I mean, I, I just thought that was great. It's, a, it's like a sort of silent 
com like silent film sort of um, way of organizing people in space. Almost, it's it's quite unusual mm -hmm. now. Yeah. Right, and it's he takes what could have been you know ten minutes worth of setup and exposition and just crams it all into yeah. that one shot, which. I, I, I get there's an economy of storytelling, visual storytelling to Lynch episodes that um, is just virtuosic and that not many other directors can really approach. God, what's what what next? Well, there's I mean, there's a couple of like there's a couple of really spectacular sequences at the beginning. I mean, I think this isn't this certainly is not my absolute favorite uh, far from my favorite scene in the whole show. But it's worth mentioning just because it's still interesting is the um, maybe the use of, of Lynch's uh, handle on noise in the sequence at the Great Northern early on mm -hmm. where yeah. Philip Gerard, uh, you know, ostensibly uh points to Ben, like freaks out when Ben comes into the room. But, you know, I mean, that, that sequence is such a kind of great example of, of Lynch's sort of lack of interest in making people comfortable in any kind of way, because that scene is a quite straightforward scene, right? I mean, anybody else, it's like you have uh, Coop and Truman sort of picking people up and marching them in front of Gerard and Gerard saying, no, no, no. And it, it could be the most boring scene. Like there's just very little actually going on in it. And yet, because of this um, structure that Lynch invents with the, whatever that is, like a sailor's convention, like people in the Navy's convention of like rubber ball bouncing enthusiasts or some nonsense, <laughs> like what, who knows what this is, but they're all standing around bouncing these balls, right? And, the, and like all of the voices in the lobby and this like cacophonous space that you're in with the repetition of the balls and like it, it creates a level of, of sonic discomfort that is... Um, yeah, excessive to, and, and just sort of confusing. Like, as a viewer, you're like, why is this so unpleasant and horrible, even before Ben comes into it? Yeah. And I just, that kind of stuff, I think, is really interesting. I'm just trying to imagine Lynch conceiving of that sequence and, like, explaining how it was going to be done and, like, casting extras and stuff. Like, I want sailors, <laughs> and I want balls, <laughs> and a lot of them. And that's, that's, I think, honestly, that was probably the entire conception of the sequence. Probably. Um, I actually, I was thinking about that a lot, rewatching this this time and knowing maybe more about the kind of production uh, model for the show in the sense, and I, and I don't, I didn't find anybody specifically speaking to it in relation to this episode, but um, I, I've definitely heard people talk about how, uh, you know, Frost and others would write these like really detailed scripts. And then when Lynch was directing, Lynch would often very much go off script like it, it wasn't and I've, I've heard that particularly in relation to the finale so it's possible that he was sort of more on script with some of the other episodes but one does get the sense that that lynch very much took liberties around maybe following every scene that was on the page or something again because if you if, for people who don't again don't know this it's it, people who write screenplays or scripts there's a certain number of pages per minute of uh, the television show or the movie because, you know, people estimate, well, you're going to have characters talking pretty regularly all the time. And so you can say that this much time is going to pass according to these much words on the page. And by that logic, Lynch's scripts would be half as long as a regular television script mm -hmm. because Lynch takes so much more time and space to do other things that are not dialogue focused. Um, and so anyway, so I, I suspect there was some reworking maybe of what Frost had envisioned right. for this episode, but... Well, yeah, the way I imagine it is like the first half or even three quarters of this episode is paced pretty much like a standard Twin Peaks episode. You know, there's a lot of characters, there's a lot of dialogue. And I just imagine Lynch getting that teleplay and just getting to the sequence with Gerard in the hotel. And he's just like, well, could we do it with sailors? 
<laughs> and they were just like, yeah, sure, whatever. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, uh, the next sequence is another like amazing example of a scene that you could very much imagine being done in a completely different way, in a way that would, would strip all of these other fascinating kind of layers of experience that Lynch finds in it. But the next scene is uh, the sequence where you uh, open on the painting of Missoula, Montana, and the mm. camera camera moves across uh, a whole series of Laura's images in photos, a record player, and then you get to uh, Leland and Sarah sitting on the couch. And if you freeze it for a second, you can see that the photo of Laura is framed right between them in the way that the image is set up. And then Maddie comes and sits between them. And um, I don't think I'd ever noticed it before because I was I had been sort of more focused on maybe the overt like narrative developments in that scene, which is uh, Maddie tells Leland and Sarah she's leaving. Um, and there's there's an exchange between them, right? I mean, Leland and Sarah are upset that Maddie is leaving. Um, Although, and we'll maybe come back to this later, but Leland's response plays into a larger arc of what's going on with that character in this episode. But um, anyway, so if you're focused on that, you maybe kind of miss some of the really fascinating stuff that, that Lynch is just doing with the space, which is, you know, anybody else. Again, you maybe just would have a series of kind of shot reverse shots where you have characters, like mid close-ups of characters' heads talking to each other. This is all one take, as far as I, know, I can remember. It's all yeah, one take. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Okay. And the, the family is sitting on this couch, and they are so far removed from the camera. Like, they're quite far back by, you know, traditional standards of a sort of dialogue-heavy scene. They're quite far back from the camera. But more than that, you have all of this kind of crazy accoutrement of, like, the d- domestic space in, like, cluttering the image around them. So you have a sort of cabinet. I can't remember. Maybe it's the record player, but you have, like, a big cabinet on one side of them that takes up almost half of the image for a lot of it. You have like these other kind of tables, you have a lamp sort of over them and they're squished together on this little couch and the level of kind of like um, constraint feeling and menacing feeling of this image you know, towards uh, Maddie in the middle, but the other two characters as well of this sort of like domestic kind of like unpleasant constraint is is really remarkable. Yeah, and you know, it's it's there's a lot going on in that sequence but it hadn't really occurred to me but you're right that they, they feel very boxed in which is deliberately ironic because madeline is talking about how she needs to escape twin peaks because at that point that would be your thought is i need to get the fuck out of here uh, yep. because ep- people keep thinking i'm my dead cousin and it's getting weird and this weird boring guy keeps hitting on me but um, <laughs> this robot in a leather jacket won't leave me alone. <laughs> Ned Flanders' nephew keeps following me around. <laughs> sorry, James. But uh, <laughs> sorry, not sorry. But and also while this is happening, I just wanted to note that at scoring the sequence, it's very, very rare that we get non-Battlementi music scoring any sequence. I was going to say we get Louis Armstrong's "What a Wonderful World," but I'm not sure why. But they opted for a different recording. Mm-hmm. than the one we're mostly familiar with from other films. It's it's a little bit faster. It's got this long spoken word intro. It's a live it's, live recording is how I had heard it described as well, apparently. Is it? I wonder if they just couldn't get the rights to the studio recording, like or or if it was a little bit cheaper to use the live version. I don't I don't know if if there was a specific reason, but it's cool that they found one that has that sort of uh sort of wistful intro. No, I find that I I mean the song very much plays into uh, kind, a kind, I don't know, a set of set of a sort of emotional properties that we are 
I guess. I mean, I like I, I'm talking about it as if the, the secret of who killed Laura Palmer isn't going to be revealed until we start talking about that scene. But I guess it's worth it is worth talking about this episode from the vantage of, of somebody who doesn't who doesn't know what the development is with Laura Palmer's killer because you're watching the sequence and. I still to this day find that moment, that sort of emotional landscape between the three characters quite heartbreaking when, when Maddie says, I'm going to leave, and Sarah is clearly devastated, right? And and Leland is obviously upset as well, and but shifts gears very quickly and realizes that, of course, it's, you know, not very fair for them to be expecting that their grief will be the job of this young woman. And so Leland says, you know, of course you have to leave. We completely understand. And But there is such, like, and Sarah's reactions are very strange and... But anyway, you have, at the end, the scene ends with them saying, I love you to each other. And it feels very kind of, you know, like the family really does love each other. And you have this Armstrong song playing over everything. And I don't know. And we'll come back to it again later. But I think it's important to note how much the show from the early on is kind of putting out this notion of of love as a really strong element of what's going on here. And it's going to keep coming back. But anyway. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's it's. Important that we get one last glimpse of the, I guess, the real Leland, or perhaps the real Leland. Uh, as we've mentioned before, we never really got to know the real Leland. Um, but in the glimpses that we do get when he's not around Ben Horn, he seems like a very lovely man. Yeah. Uh, and it, we get one last glimpse of that here, and it makes sense that it's far away. Mm, that's interesting, yeah. The real Leland. We should keep talking about that, the, this idea of the real Leland, because I think there's some interesting stuff there with, yeah, even this fact that, like, in the quote-unquote real Leland, you never you never quite get any kind of real grounding over what you think is the real Leland. Like, yeah, like, as you say, this idea that he's such a different person when he's around Ben from when he's around Sarah and Laura. It's like there's already a, a very strange level of, um, like, perfidiousness there or something. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the easiest segue here is to talk about Ben and mm-hmm. his... Again, another long sequence uh, between him and Audrey where she finally confronts him about his role in uh, the end of Laura's life. You know, it really shouldn't work at this point that we have yet another character like sort of break down and say, you know what? Like, yes, I did sleep with Laura and yes, I loved her. He's literally like the 17,000th character to do so. Mm -hmm. Uh, But God damn it, that theme perks up and and the dialogue pivots and the performance pivots and you're just like ah they got me again with this with this shit like really i know it's <laughs> I, and i find that scene with with ben and the photo i i find it very yeah, it's it's very strange because again, I mean, and, and um, what's his name? Uh, Richard Beamer is is yeah. great as Ben Horn in that scene, and he's able to move through such a kind of level of of different reactions, like ranging from from shame, uh, which is not something we've really ever seen from him so far. So that's a sort of interesting reaction. This idea of a this sort of is shame. what it takes, yeah, exactly, uh, in front of Audrey. But you know, and she asks him if if she kill if he killed her, and yeah, he picks up that photo. And the thing that I find fascinating about it is is Beamer's performance, and again, I'm looking at this through hindsight eyes, so I have no idea how this played to people watching it for the first time. It's possible it might have just read as very malevolent, but I feel like that the reading from Beamer there, it, it reads as very authentic, like, which again, doesn't necessarily cancel out the possibility he might have hurt her, but, um, this, this, his expression of love feels very overwhelming and very authentic. And then you cut to a photo of Laura that he has on his desk, 
that is the weirdest photo that you would have of someone on your desk. I mean, not only is it weird that he would have a photo of his daughter's friend on his desk to begin with, um, you know, you'd think that like a hardcore detective might have maybe made a note of that earlier on in the <laughs> investigation. But anyway, but the photo of Laura is... Um, She's she's quite angry looking in the photo. She's quite defiant. Like she has this look on her face of almost disappointment and like standoffishness. And I, I just find that a really and, and then Lynch cuts to a close up of it at one point that sort of fills the screen. And I, I mm-hmm. find it maybe a really, again, an interesting example of what we've been talking about here, this sort of dual or not even dual, like multiplicitous version of Laura that we have. Right. Well, and a guy like Ben, there's absolutely no reason he wouldn't just look at that photo and say, look how beautiful she is in this mm-hmm. photo. Exactly. Like that, that's very much the feeling that we get from him holding it. You, he wouldn't necessarily notice that she looks angry or haunted or standoffish or anything. He just sees, oh, there's that beautiful girl that I had sex with who then died. Yeah, um, exactly. So, uh, yeah, yes, yes. Yet another uh, character trying to sort of lay claim to to that particular relationship. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, like I said, it should not work. It should absolutely have not worked. Chances are, if that sequence had landed in someone else's lap, it probably would not have worked. But damn it, they got me. They got me. I felt like such a sucker. The one that gets me every time, Simon, uh, like tears every time, is the one is the scene after between Norma and Shelley at the diner. Yeah, where Shelley where Shelley is saying to Norma, "I have to quit." I, I. that scene every time, like tears. I, like Machen Amick is so good in it, um, as is uh, Peggy Lipton. Yes. But it just like I, I'll say again, like in relation to what I said earlier, maybe about this idea of like there being these sort of spaces of of love that the show and Lynch does such a good job of sort of marking out. And and you know Lynch famously, like I think Dennis Lynch talks about this a lot in the book. Like Lynch maybe famously kind of takes these sort of love moments in his material almost to an extreme, like almost to the point where it's jokey, like in things like Blue Velvet, right? I mean, this idea of a kind of naive innocence, caring between characters is often almost a joke. But I don't find that that's what's going on in sequences like this one with um, uh, Norma and Shelley. I just find it to be this unbelievable scene of two women who like care for each other and love each other and want to take care of you. I just find it heartbreaking. (laughs) I don't know what you Simon. I I particularly Peggy Lipton really blows me away in that sequence. Just her, her maternal warmth and which is very much, very much aided by what feels like an, an unfamiliar theme courtesy of battle of Menti. Mm. Um, like it feels like a new theme. Um, just, just a beautiful, beautiful sequence. Um, and it, it doesn't feel loaded in in the ways that a lot of other stuff on this show feels like where it's trying to do a bunch yeah. of stuff at once. It feels like it's it's one of those rare instances where it's just committing to one emotion uh, wholeheartedly. And maybe that's another reason that it works so well, because it's not, you know, the Ben sequence that happens right before is so complex mm-hmm. and ambiguous and, you know, we could take it any number of ways. But to to go from that to this, like, just purely lovely sequence is... is uh, is good writing. It's true. And I, I kind of don't think, I mean, like, I'd have to go back and double check because I can't keep all the episodes in my head. But I, I do feel like these moments between Shelley and Norma that are so lovely are are specific to Lynch episodes, right? I'm not sure you get them in the same kind of way. I mean, I'm, I'm not even sure they, they turn up in the writing as often. But then even more than that, I'm not sure you get this sort of, like, really deep level of a, just a kind of, I don't know, yeah, impressive emotional impact and... um 
I don't know, attention or something is, is I think there's, I think those sequences end up being in the Lynch episodes, which is interesting, but hmm. anyway. Um, and then of course the camera pans over to, uh, Super Nadine and Ed, which I, I, I like, I, I think the Super Nadine stuff works in this episode. I don't think it's bad. I think it's actually one of the few moments where Super Nadine is interesting and brings something to the episode, but I don't know. How do you, how, what do you think, Simon? My literal exact wording in my notes is, the only good Ed plus Super Nadine sequence. <laughs> All right, so we're on the same page. Yes. Yeah. Um, some combination of oh god. I I mean I think actually this reminds me of a, a weird thing from maybe three or four episodes ago. Do you remember how there was a sequence where uh, Norma and Hank talk about how she needs to call Ed to like, ask him a favor that has to do with the restaurant critic mm. being there. Yeah. Yeah. And then we don't see it. <laughs> yeah, like, that's like there's something that didn't make the cutting room floor. Like I don't, I don't know if if there if that shows up in deleted scenes anywhere. But it, it does feel like they haven't been doing the most they can with with the the Norma and Ed stuff. And uh, this just brings it roaring back with again Peggy Lipton just uh, exuding such warmth in this just pathos ridden like ri- but also completely ridiculous sequence that comes to a head with. You know, obviously the bloody milkshake, <laughs> which yeah. I feel like blood and chocolate milkshake is like is like the ultimate Lynch concoction. Yeah, that that and uh, Leo drooling down his face later are both like really Lynch Lynch touches there. Um, no, I mean I think the Nadine sequence. I think a you're right that you really feel it when Ed and Nadine come back to the fore in the narrative here, and you're like, oh, I remember you guys as characters that I loved and have missed for episodes, and yes. I am really glad that you're back. I mean, it, it 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 does confuse me a little bit as to sort of, like, where they went as characters. I mean, again, you know, like, we've given many minutes to Dick Tremaine and other these other characters <laughs> that you're like, they have no why, and yet they couldn't sort of... I, and I'm not sure if that was just simply reticence to kind of rely too much on these melodramatic tropes that Lynch had set up, right? I mean, because in a melodrama, you basically just have characters, like these characters are the sort of types, right? There's these two types of the the people who want to be together, the doomed lovers, and they cannot be together. And, you know, and in a, in a true melodrama, you just sort of milk that, like, forever. It's It's unabashed kind of milking of this impossible position that they're in. And, you know, Lynch is masterful at it. It, it always the emotion never drains out of it. It's like the emotion is made stronger every time we return to it. Again, at least when Lynch is doing it. Uh, but I, I think they're wonderful. I do think I, part of the reason why the Nadine scene works here is, and I'm not sure if this is Frost or Lynch, but somebody here maybe has remembered or figured out why there was ever any thinking in the first place of turning Nadine into like a teenager in her memory. And it, is because it allows you to get at this sort of like pathos of the Ed and Nadine situation, or the Ed and the Norma situation, right? I mean, Nadine is able to sort of call it out and, and verbalize it and put it on the table in a way that I think that for any other reasons, they'd sort of run out of ways to do. And I, I, I do think that there is like the look on Norma's face when Nadine is like, oh, I know you guys broke up and Eddie and I are going out now. And I, yeah, Peggy, Peggy Lipton is one of the, she has a true kind of, um, melodramatic actress like the person who can just give waves of sort of pain and depth but but show so little of it i i don't know it's amazing yeah yeah um i mean you said that it explains super neat i mean it explains why she 
has reverted to being a teenager doesn't really explain the superpowers. You're right. It does not explain the superpowers. Never clear as to why that was a necessary idea. Never clear. Yeah. Anyway, it's well, true. And who? Yeah. Who knows if that, they, anybody ever was thinking about this stuff in the first place? But but between Lynch and Frost, they definitely managed to find a way to put it to kind of like emotional logic use in a way that is very much appreciated here. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to spend a ton of time on it, but I just wanted to briefly mention. I was going back through those IRC chats, and we were discussing last week uh, Mr. Tojimura and mm. anyone being fooled by the costume. As it turns out, some people at the time were, okay. uh, because there were people saying, so that's clearly Catherine Martell, right? And then like one or two other people would be like, nah, you're crazy, <laughs> which is very funny to read now. And it was all, it's very funny to read the the postings for this episode where people are like, yeah, I was an idiot. Um, so yeah, Jack Nance and some people on the internet were fooled. So I guess it wasn't a total failure. Uh, I guess they worked it out. Um, yeah, that's true. The re- it is funny that they decided to do this revelation of uh, of Catherine in this episode because it's like. I mean, you know, that scene works super well. And again, like Lynch brings sort of beautiful lighting and staging to that sequence and everything. And Piper Laurie is great in it. But it's it falls so far below like the the priority of everything else that's going on in this episode. You kind of think maybe they could have waited until next week or something like it might have gotten a little more attention. Um, But anyway, we should let's we should keep this going because I can't I I can't wait to talk about the last half of this episode. because It's unbelievable um, I, I have one last thing to talk about uh before we get to the to the you know it's not even the last half it's really the last like eight minutes of the episode well i the stuff with um the first cut to sarah and the like the record player in the chair oh, and sarah yeah, happens yeah. happens like 15 minutes away from the end at least maybe 20 minutes away from the end but anyway yeah um and we also get the shot of sarah crawling down the stairs yes about midway through uh, yeah, and then yeah. the real the real fun kicks off uh, fairly late in the episode, which we'll we'll get there. I promise. We'll, we'll get to the fireworks factory. Um, I wanted <laughs> we'll to briefly get to the fireworks factory. <laughs> I uh, I briefly wanted to mention. Uh, you already mentioned the Leo sequence, but oh man, <laughs> yeah. The B- Bobby screaming like a girl. It's back. Bobby, I love it. <laughs> anytime Bobby screams, it's it's a good episode. I think that someone's got to. Someone should check on that as a fact, but I, I think it's true. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't know if other directors would have had the cojones to have Leo talking like a seven-year-old girl about his shoes, and then having that be like a source of like primal terror for for uh, Bobby and Shelley. But well, at, no. At the beginning, it's not that he says new shoes. At the beginning, first he starts screaming. Like first, Leo starts shrieking, which right, is what right. which is what makes them jump up. And then it turns into the spit up new plus shoes. new shoes, new shoes, new shoes. <laughs> so I'm not sure. So Simon, I I think we should recalibrate what you said earlier and say, is this uh Leo? Is this Eric Duray's best performance so far in this episode? Oh, uh, I mean, I think it might it might be. It depends on if the drool is real or not. <laughs> or if it was uh makeup and makeup and props. That's true. I guess we may never know. Alright, so I'm just let me quickly scan through my notes to think if there's anything else I want to mention before we get into just the terror and Well, because there's there's a lot that goes on. Like it's like we build up to the terror. So there's a few yeah. sequences still to come before we get to the really crazy uh crazy stuff. Because we get, for example, we get um Da, da, da. We get this first cut to the record player 
the chair and uh like i'll say I, the reason i should point out the reason i'm saying the record player is because it's such a distinctive like sonic element of this sequence so for people who don't remember it cuts to this sequence inside the kind of living room space of the palmer house and there the record has been left to run and so you just get the record looping and popping and looping and popping um and then lynch starts doing unbelievable things like he'll cut to a shot of the the chair in the living room but he'll be at ground level and the camera will just sort of snake backwards from the chair on the ground and you have no idea what's going on and it's terrifying and at this point we have no context for anything we have no context for what's happening camera camera pans over we see sarah palmer crawl into the frame and then we cut and we we go back to the um police station and coop and uh truman are depositing ben horn at the police station uh and then margaret turns up the log lady which is a great sequence as well with margaret uh the owls are the owls are in the roadhouse or something she says um yes yeah maybe there's something there worth talking about before we even get to the, to the style stuff the fact that so many of these characters end up converging on the roadhouse um which it, it's very rare to have I think there's something like a dozen re- main or recurring characters are in that space at the same time. Um, you know, you've got James and Maddie uh, having their heart to heart, and you've I you don't you also have uh, Bobby at the bar just like chugging it back. Yeah, uh, and the funny thing is, apparently, um, the actor who plays Bobby, uh, he has talked in uh, interviews about the fact that he wasn't supposed to be in that sequence. He just decided to go to set that day to hang out, and Lynch <laughs> saw him and was like, "Oh, get in makeup, and then get to the bar and just look sad." That, that's what happened. So that's why you have Bobby in that sequence, which is fantastic because the sequence would be different. Like it would not work the same way without that many of the characters yeah. there. Even yeah. though it doesn't make sense that he's at a bar drinking because he's like eighteen, but whatever. Um, let's, I, we're choosing to ignore it. And also like everyone's 25, so it's fine. Dana Ashbrook. That's his name. That's, there we go. Of course. Yeah. Durr. So yeah. So everyone kind of is made to con- either converges or is made to converge on the roadhouse for this sequence. I mean, even, uh, even Julie Cruz is there. She got the memo. Um, and that's uh, from a plot standpoint. And I don't think we want to spend too much time thinking about, Twin Peaks as a plot show but I think if it had aired more recently this probably would have been made a bigger deal of the the fact is that like you know th- these these supernatural forces could have done lots of things uh it could have for instance told Cooper to go to the Palmer house uh, yeah uh but instead it's and I'm not I'm not complaining I'm just pointing this out you know it, it gets everyone converging on this on this uh, sort of other in this other space where Cooper has this kind of elegiac uh, moment of of realization, and it's you know th- there's there's been a decision made that these these forces are they're going to comment but they're not going to intervene, and uh, that's 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 an interesting decision. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I hadn't even really thought about that stuff. I suppose, I suppose for many viewers, that those kinds of things would be a real question because, like, obviously, I, I think I've talked about this at some point in the past, where I said stuff about how, like, the giants, the giants' clues to Coop are are not clues that would be like directive. Like, they're not going to tell Coop, oh, if you go here at this time, then you're going to be able to do X. Like, it, it, it's nothing like that. It's it's always a kind of retrospective knowledge that come out comes out of what these guys are able to offer from this other sort of dimension. Like, it's always confirmatory. It's always like, okay, well, here's a, something, you're suspecting something, the event happens, and then 
we point backwards towards it and say, yes, that is what happened, which is, is again, a certain kind of like, there's a long tradition in sort of classical literature and everything um, of that being a form of, it's like prophecy. Prophecy doesn't tell you what's going to happen. Prophecy only becomes clear after the event has happened. And so there is very much something like that going on there. Um, it never even occurs to me to think about those kinds of questions of like mm. how of that, but I guess that does make sense. I, I have my own reading for why I think it is that, Lynch and Frost structure that sequence where Coop and uh, and everyone else end up at the bar and not doing something else. Um, and, and we can either come, like, maybe let's come back to that, actually, in a little while, because uh, I feel like, should we should we just maybe run quickly through the revelation and just sort of get that on the table, and then we can dig into all of this uh, stuff? <laughs> all right. So um, Andy did it. Who saw it coming? <laughs> actually, a lot of people were guessing Andy. Um no, they weren't really. Yeah, they were. People, people oh were. God. I mean, obviously, the main guesses were Leland and Ben, but quite, the third, the third most popular guess that I saw was Andy, which is hilarious. God, people are so people are so distrusting of, of <laughs> poor Andy. He's so nice. Oh, uh, um, he was using all those post feels... its to cover up the holes in his heart. <laughs> it's uh, it's like he could he could orchestrate this sort of murder of uh, this girl in this complicated way and get away with it, but he can't step out of the way of a log that he steps on and then it hits him in the face. Yeah. Um, but, you know, anyway. <laughs> yeah. So, yes. yeah. So the the entire, you know, structuring mystery of the show is solved. Seven episodes <laughs> into a 22 episode season, which was obviously yeah. a great idea. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So this is the, the, the story. Uh, I mean, I think it's pretty familiar to people who are familiar with Twin Peaks, but we should run through it again generally, which is that uh, the studio has started to put pressure on Lynch and Frost, I think even during first season, but it was becoming more explicit in the second season that they were being dragged into meetings and being told the killer of Laura Palmer needs to be revealed sooner rather than later. This has to end like soon. Uh, And, you know, they were effectively forced into it. And I, you know, I mean, it really does seem like they, yeah, really had no other choice. So they they do this and they reveal Laura's killer in this part of the episode, um, part of the season, even though they had very much wanted to wait until later to do that. Uh, and it's interesting because, like, I think you mentioned this last week even, Simon, but the, the network had been really heavily promoting this episode by saying, uh, this week, finally, Laura Palmer's killer is going to be revealed. Finally, like in this very sort of ridiculous way. <laughs> finally, like 12 months into the show. Aaron. Exactly. <laughs> um, you know, you've waited all this time. Finally. So Laura's killer is going to be revealed. So they'd, they'd marketed it pretty heavily. Um, and then there actually was a really pronounced ratings jump in this week's episode. The previous week, it had been something like 11 million. If I'm remembering, it had been 11 million. This week, it was 17 million. So it was sort of back up to its, its more consistent number numbers from season one that you know 16 17 million had been the average in season one um and so there was a jump with that and it hangs on a little bit for next week and then the numbers go down dramatically but uh i think you wanted to mention something about the ratings with simon with the uh night too right uh well yeah as i understand it and people can correct me and will correct me uh, if i'm wrong about this but i believe starting with season two and i'm looking at the dates on wikipedia and it does seem like it aired regularly um each week they were moved to a Saturday time slot, which if for anyone who doesn't know anything about uh, scheduling television, uh, Saturday is not a night you schedule television. You want people to watch. Uh, it's, it's not a, it's not a time slot that screams, Hey, we have great confidence in what, it, in what you're doing. Please yeah. keep it up. Uh, it's sort of the opposite of that. 
Um, it's not quite the Friday night death slot that was so often described uh, as happening to, you know, some Joss Whedon stuff, for instance, throughout the 90s, mm-hmm. but it's pretty close. Yep, it was, uh, I think, as uh, Lim, as Dennis Lim puts it in his book, because I was just reviewing it this morning, it was it was seen as a bid to euthanize the show, to kind of, like, let it just go away quietly. Um, and I think, yeah, the network, I, I mean, I've always read this as the network really wanted to force Lynch and Frost to, to give the show a, con- a conclusion, and then they wanted it gone. Like, then they really wanted to get rid of it. So, um I don't know, and and we'll keep talking in weeks going forward, yeah. I guess, about how that unfolds. But uh, so okay, they so wanted so to get back to making those nice shows like they used to make. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> back when television was wholesome. Um, so anyway, so that's the framing story for what was going on in this uh, in this week. Um, and yeah, I don't, I still don't think we've said it right. But after after you get a couple of sequences at the roadhouse, and the, this the final sequences of the episode cut back and forth between all of the characters at the roadhouse and what's going on at the Palmer house uh, back and forth. Uh, it is revealed that uh, after, after Sarah Palmer sees a vision of a white horse on the ground and then passes out. Uh, and that vision of the white horse to this day is still amazing. Like it's great. Uh, anyway, she passes out, cuts back to the roadhouse and we cut back and, uh, and we get one of the more infamous shots in the history of Twin Peaks, which is, shot of Leland standing in front of a mirror, sort of ignoring Sarah on the floor, and you're already freaking, like, something's already wrong there, right? And then um, you cut to Leland, cut back to the mirror, and in the mirror is Bob. And so this is, of course, the reveal of Leland, finally, as Bob. Um, and it's not, you know, pleasant. This is uh, this is not fun. <laughs> oh, if you, know, if you think that's not pleasant, uh, dear viewers, wait a minute or two, because it gets a lot less pleasant. So uh, I feel like we're still we're still circling around these scenes because they're you know for people who maybe haven't reviewed the episode so recently or only vaguely remember them um, these are not easy scenes to talk about <laughs> like they're they're difficult scenes to watch I mean this is I I think this is one of the best episodes of television ever made I think it is un- unbelievable I mean I think the the balance and the movement between the horrific sequence with Leland. Um, being revealed as Bob, uh, Maddie walking down the stairs, all of these this amazing work with the spotlights. Um, like for people who don't remember, the, the sequence mm-hmm. consists of cutting back and forth between the version where it's Frank Silva and the version where it's Ray Wise and, and the two men are mapped onto each other. But as you cut to Frank Silva as Bob, um, there's always a spotlight that's that's beaming down on them, which I think, as you said earlier, Simon, you know, Lynch as a visual storyteller and a sonic storyteller too, but visual storyteller is is on such perfect display here because in, in the spotlight, you have a link of Bob to the giant who appears via spotlight on the stage in the um, the roadhouse. So you have this sort of otherworldly like connection there already. Um, but you also have something really interesting going on with this idea of the spotlight as, uh, you know, this bright white light, like the light at the end of the tunnel, this light, you know, like this idea that the brightness is supposed to in- indicate goodness or something. And here it is the opposite. Here it is this like pitiless, horror that that just sort of makes the blood show up more i mean i it's i find the sequence insane it's amazing yeah i mean i i swear to god i'm not trying to pull rank when i when i say that kate i've watched more television than you have <laughs> uh, simon yeah i will totally give you that honor you have that crown I did, you like, have watched so much more television than i have yeah i did like 160 episodes of the televerse or something like and you know other reasons it's just i've seen a lot of television and I completely concur with you that this is one of the greats. Um, 
not just of this show, but in general. And, uh, you know, it, it's it's telling that one of the criticisms, you know, so much, so often when shows are violent, um, they get they get that very predictable criticism thrown at them of, oh, they're they're glorifying violence or they're, you know, they're being sensationalistic. And you know what? Maybe maybe uh, if someone wants to dip into the into the press archives of 1990, they can find uh, counter evidence. But I have never read anyone saying that Twin Peaks glorifies violence or that you know that anything about what's going on is uh is is sexy or alluring um it's interesting though Simon because I I do know that this narrative of Lynch favoring a certain kind of storyline that that involves um battered women and involves mm. uh damaged women is and and hurting women this sort of sadistic impulse of his art sure that that comes up with some regularity i mean it's not necessarily yeah it certainly isn't the same claim as twin peaks like glorifies violence in this scenario and and i personally think it's the opposite and we can keep talking about that but um there is definitely and there has been criticisms of twin peaks they get they get worse when we get to fire walk with me but there were criticisms of you know twin peaks these episodes as yeah a certain kind of um you know, reveling in, like, getting mileage out of, getting, you know, profit or attention out of brutalizing a woman on screen. Um, I certainly don't think it's that simple at all. But anyway. No, I I would agree with that, obviously. Um, I mean, I'm not really inclined anymore to, I think maybe at a time I was. I'm less inclined the older I get to sort of evaluate art on these, like, black and white moral terms. Uh, I just think it's boring but um so yeah certainly I, I mean that was sort of the one of the main criticisms behind you know roger ebert's original pan of uh, of mm-hmm. blue of uh, blue, blue velvet. velvet um yeah. and i think that was maybe maybe even the source of those of those criticisms uh the original source but i mean i don't know there's i feel like you can't look at a, at a sequence like the one where obviously um where madeline dies i mean it's just such a just it's such a beautiful and in, incredibly executed sequence uh that is obviously i mean it's it's horrible for what it contains but like i i, I don't I, I i guess i can't bring myself to to condemn a sequence that features you know these these sites that are so so uh so iconic you know the things like these details that like where did they come from like like madeline's bloody teeth like yeah. that's what always stands out to me because it it never occurs to anyone when I when a you know you see a sequence of someone being beaten man or woman that like yeah why wouldn't your mouth be full of blood and it's I'm not, I'm not saying I'm not praising Twin Peaks for its realism uh that would be a very strange thing to do but there's just these Lynch and his and his crew and I mentioned this with the nails the other the other day you know they find these new these new unexplored angles of sort of savagery and find and find ways to sort of pepper it in and in ways that wouldn't like it it makes sense to me that the stuff in this episode didn't run afoul of censors because you know the actual content frame by frame is not necessarily any more violent than other stuff that would have been airing at the time and certainly stuff that would be airing even a couple years later it's just the these these ways these sort of for lack of a better word novel ways that Lynch finds to just dial up the the cruelty uh, of that sequence 
it it also just goes to show how much those sorts of things like standards and practices and sensor boards and stuff how how absolutely fundamentally ill equipped they are as a concept generally like we yes. just put that on the record but um but particularly in relation to somebody like Lynch because the frameworks that they tend to like apply to things have nothing to do with these questions of a kind of phenomenal experience and effective experience like the the sound like the fact that the sound in these sequences um, is 80% of what is going on is the sound is, is, mm -hmm. you know, the famous Lynch drone, Maddie screams, the way everything is slowed down. I mean, that's another, that's another one of those amazing stylistic choices that, that Lynch uses here, which is when you're in the Ray Wise, uh, version of the killing, uh, the sound and the, uh, tempo are like regular. Uh, and then when you move into the Bob version, the sound has been stretched to mimic this kind of like painful slow motion that anyway, all to say that, that, you know, like boards, like the sensor boards, they're so based on this idea of content and like a certain very clear idea of you must see X doing Y or X must say Y or blah, blah, blah. They have no framework to be able to say, wow, this sound is like right, yeah. an extent, an existential nightmare. You know, like they, you, <laughs> that you can't do that. It's not going to, you can't yeah. censor that. So, I mean, you could, I guess, but they, they don't. Um, yeah. Yeah. This, this sequence of extreme violence can only be shown at regular speed. If you, if you slow it down to 80 to, you know, 75 or 80% so that everything's blurring, it's, it's at that point, uh, too disturbing. I mean, maybe they have made calls like that, uh, for, for other films, but you're right. It's, these these measures are arbitrary and these institutions are useless. Yeah, there are so many things going on in the sequence that have have nothing to do with a certain kind of regular idea of violence, for one thing. I mean it's particularly with the sequence, I find it is less is less upsetting for an idea that you're you're watching like an external body that is Maddie. It's it's less it's less upsetting for the idea that you're watching someone be hit and you're kind of feeling it in your own body or, you know, like that, that, that mode that so many action films get mileage out of, right? I mean, even something like John Wick where it's like people's legs are being broken or whatever. And you're like, Oh, you know, you feel it in your legs. This is not what's going on here at all. Yeah. Instead, it's that Lynch is creating this unbelievable uh, effective space where, and you know, this is problematic. Like I think people will be listening and they maybe won't agree with me or they'll think that this is a failed experiment. But I, I think that what Lynch is, is trying to do is to open up this space of a certain kind of empathy where you're, 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 you're not experiencing exactly what Maddie is experiencing. That would be sympathy. Um, you're not experiencing that you are, you are, you are feeling your way into what is going on here. You are being, Oh, like radically opened on to this kind of like really unsettling space and, and, and having to be in it with Maddie. And I mean, honestly, Simon, those sequences where you cut to Bob and he's like sucking on her chin and this, I, it is, un, it's like unbearable to watch. I mean, mm -hmm. it is so painful and it has nothing to do with like a body being hit or something on screen. Although I will say the sounds of Maddie's like gurgles once Maddie's been punched by Ray Wise and she's sort of gurgling and coughing are just like, Oh, they are some of the most unsettling uh, sounds, I think, that I have seen or heard on television. Something that Lynch does that the other directors don't really have a sense for is he's got a sense of how to place bodies in 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 space in relation to each other that is just that is just wrong. Like the the and and it's all sort of portended by the, the sequence of Sarah crawling down the stairs, where even before we see her get down there, we're already at a low angle. Um, on on the living room floor, we're already keyed into. Wait, I shouldn't be looking at this space from down here, and then we see Sarah just crawling. Uh, I it's worth mentioning. Grace Zabriskie is horrifically underused on this series, and I'd forgotten mm -hmm. how little uh 
yes. airtime she gets. But she makes the most of it in, in this episode. And I, I feel like that sequence clues us into, you know, obviously it keys you in that something very wrong is going to happen in that space. But also just the the way you mentioned, you know, Bob and and his the stuff that he does to uh to Maddie and it's um like no one like to have the the imagination to think okay well at this point he's like he is like you know he's like a lion toying with his prey yeah um yeah. that more than a man assaulting a woman mm-hmm. um i mean that's lynch lynch for better or worse can can tap into that where other like no one other people lack the imagination and whether whether or not it's a good thing to have that kind of imagination is i guess yeah. up to the viewer my question. Um, I mean, I think there's another interesting thing there, and I'll maybe just open this up here and we can come back to it next week because I think it's going to make more sense to talk about all these questions next week. But you also do get this um, aspect of the Bob Leland-Maddie triangle here where you have Leland regularly saying things like, you know, Laura, my darling, Laura, my baby. And and this opens up this question that's going to become increasingly important going forward, well, for a while, and then the series inexplicably kind of drops it. But um is this question of, of yeah, this sort of uh, maybe on, like line between Bob and Leland, like where it begins, mm-hmm. where it ends, and and does it matter? And and my general approach to a lot of this stuff, as people may have figured out, is that it doesn't really matter. We don't need to have some kind of code or like rule book that says like, oh, well, Leland is a body and there's an inhabiting spirit and we can clearly like draw a line between them. It's like, that isn't really the point. Um, but I, I do think there is um, something very painful in that moment where he's sort of crying out, Laura, my baby, Laura, my darling, because it doesn't really matter if it's Bob saying those words or if it's Leland saying those words. What matters is the kind of unbearable agony of the fact that here in these sequences, you know, love is revealed very much to be destructive and brutalizing and and for those things to not have a clear boundary between them. And, you know, you flash back to Leland earlier in the episode saying to Maddie, we love you. Like, of course, we understand you have to leave. And this question of, well, was he Bob or was he Leland? And again, it doesn't matter. Like Lynch is, is finding this space in which love becomes brutality and brutality seems to have love. And, it, and it's, it's such an unsettling kind of revelation that, of course, like extends and mirrors this, this practical real uh, reveal that we have here, which is the reveal of incest, right? I mean, this incredible, um, brutal running over of a line that should mm-hmm. be drawn between two bodies is here, you know, love is destruction. I, ju- I just find it amazing on every kind of level, the way in which this is brought out here. Yeah. And I think it's worth pointing out, obviously that the way this sequence is executed more than anything we've seen, I think previous really points a line for his future work. Like that, mm. this sequence absolutely predicts, you know, the darkest, the, the the darkest and the most intense moments of Mulholland Drive and even Inland Empire. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you like this sequence and you want to see it drawn on for like long periods of time, uh, aesthetically and otherwise, uh, boy, do we have some movies to recommend to you. That's um, true. Well, and we'll, and we'll have our discussion of uh, a fire walk with me too, which should very much dig into some of that stuff as well. Honestly, something like, I think I could, you could just, I could write a book like about this episode and there, and there has been a lot of academic writing, I think about this episode, like many good things, but there's, there's a couple of things I wanted to point out here that, that connect to other ideas that we've been talking about with Lynch throughout. So, uh, 
One is I'm maybe going to, I'll reference uh, something we talked about more in season one, which was this um, differentiation that's maybe at work in the show and the way it approaches like questions of detectiveness and, uh, you know, like empiricism and all of this stuff and knowledge. Uh, and I, I thought it was interesting watching this episode, the way that, um, you know, so much of horror, like as a genre, seems to function around the idea of horror living in in the unknown, like in in what cannot be known, you know, like whether it's who's behind that door, or like where is the ghost in the house or any of these things or what's going to jump out and kill me. Um, you know, that's usually where horror lives. Uh, and Lynch has done such a great job of sort of playing with that up to this point, it being beyond the edge. And then I think there's something amazing that Lynch does here where he says, actually, you know, sometimes it's more horrific to know. Like, sometimes mm -hmm. it's worse to know. Like, knowledge is not safety. Knowledge is not going to give you a kind of reprieve from the world being an appalling, appalling place. And I, I think that's fascinating. And then I think it maybe moves into, again, back to this sort of other move that Lynch is making throughout the episode, which is, so then what is a kind of reprieve? Or what is the thing that's given to us against this horror? And it is these spaces of you know, I don't want to say an opposing affect because I think purposely he's blending them, but you know, the, what we might want to call positive affects, right? Like love and, um, empathy and sorrow for things you love. I mean, and this of course brings us to the scene we haven't talked about at all, which is a bummer because they are such amazing sequences, all of them, which are the sequences in the roadhouse mm -hmm. yes. because as, as Maddie is being killed, um, the events that are happening in the roadhouse are, you know, um, God, they're really difficult to explain, but at some point you get the, the, the world's most decrepit waiter or whatever appears again magically, comes up to Cooper and, and, you know, reaches out to him and says, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And I'm actually, oh my God, Simon, I'm forgetting now. If you get this move, I think you get this move towards the kind of like emotional buildup of everyone becoming sorrowful. I think you get that after Coop has received the visit from the giant on the stage, right? Is that how that works? Uh, I believe so. Or is so? it reversed? Yeah, okay, so so Cooper gets the visit from the giant on the stage, and then the guy comes over and says, I'm sorry. Uh, and after that, after the, the guy says, I'm sorry to Cooper, it's like the whole episode is weeping. It's like every aspect of that space in the roadhouse is weeping. You know, Donna breaks down crying. Uh, Bobby looks, I don't know, heartbroken, sitting at the bar. And... You know, Lynch, it's never made explicit, of course. Like, it's never as simple as, like, oh, they're telepathically understanding that something is happening. It's never made that simple. And it's all the more interesting for the fact that it isn't. It's simply, you know, the episode itself, it's the show itself um, bemoaning what what can't be done like what isn't mm -hmm. fixed but but it also has this space of like just this element of of love like particularly with um Larflin Boyle like weeping over Laura weeping over the world i mean it's there is such a sense of kind of yeah like love there still that i find amazing um but yeah go ahead and then i have one more thing i wanted to add well it, it it's almost i hate to go here but it's almost like a metatextual moment of hey so we had this nice show that we wanted to do and we had a plan for it and then, you know, life happened. So we're going it, to, it feels like an ending. Like it, it feels like a send off. Yeah. Like if the, yeah. the show could have gotten canceled basically after that episode and that sequence in the roadhouse where all these characters and even Julie Cruz are there, you know, to sort of give you some of that, some of that old time Twin Peaks, you know, uh, cocoon feeling uh, maybe for the last time. And it it feels like them. It feels like a send off for sort of their their original vision in a way. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think it's uh, and the interesting thing there is that the send off looks exactly like the pilot, right? It's like there yeah. there hasn't been there hasn't been any kind of forward motion. I mean, I think that's actually really important. Is like this reveal happens where all of a sudden we're given this knowledge of of Leland being the killer, and yet nothing is really different. And I, and I think that matters, right? I mean, because the whole point, and and we're gonna get this maybe more becomes clearer in the episodes going forward, but. There is like a real challenge to the viewer here even to all of a sudden be saddled with this knowledge of this character that's been in front of you the whole time um, has been this sort of horrifying monster and, you know, you've never noticed and, and this is the way that it is. But it also means that like now that you know, no, nothing is different. You're still in this space where we're weeping over this girl who's been brutalized. We're weeping over the fact that we couldn't fix it. We're weeping over the fact that nothing has changed. And and knowing, again, that Leland is the killer does not solve the problem. Like, it, it doesn't it doesn't heal the, the space of the town. It doesn't save Maddie. I mean, I think this is, again, this, like, important distinction between a certain kind of, like, viewers thinking, well, if I know who killed Laura Palmer, then that's going to solve everything, and I don't have to keep being bothered by any of this stuff. And, and Lynch is really pushing against that again. It's like, this is not an easy answer on any level. This is not, this is not doing the thing you want it to do. It doesn't make it better to know who the killer was. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which I think is great. I completely agree. Uh, I'm going to do something a little bit weird, and you know, I've been uh, I, I've been reading up a little bit about uh, John Berger, the English art critic, since he oh, died. Oh, nice. Yeah, and I don't know. You maybe you know this quote, Kate, but um, he had you know he passed away recently, and he had a quote about death that has been making the rounds a lot. And I couldn't help but thinking about it when we were watching that, uh, you know, sort of very elegiac sequence in the Roadhouse. So I'm just going to read it. That's going to be my last contribution to this episode. what reconciles me to my own death more than anything else is the image of a place a place where your bones and mine are buried thrown uncovered together they are strewn there pell-mell one of your ribs leans against my skull a metacarpal of my left hand lies inside your pelvis against my broken ribs your breast like a flower the hundred bones of our feet are scattered like gravel. It is strange that this image of our proximity, concerning as it does mere phosphate of calcium, should bestow a sense of peace. Yet it does. With you, I can imagine a place where to be phosphate of calcium is enough. Oh, man. John Berger. Ah, well, now I can't follow that, but that's, that's, de- well, I'll, I'll, I'll still wedge in my last point, you know, yes. but I do think that should be acknowledged that that is, uh, yeah, not so easy to follow, but yeah, there's definitely something in there, this kind of connection with, um, oh God, I can't even describe it. Let's just let the quote speak for itself. It's amazing. But, uh, okay. I, I, cause I, I, I hinted at it earlier, so I feel like I should, um, yeah, yeah go for expl- it. explain this in case anybody was interested to hear about this, but I think there is something to be said for the fact that this episode is structured so that Coop and, uh, you know, the other townspeople, characters, etc., don't end up like, like that there is never any kind of even hint at the idea that somebody could have told them that it was Leland and Maddie and then they need to go there again. You're right. I mean, you get the giant saying it is happening again, but there's no information beyond that. There's no other possibility. And I find it really fascinating that what you end up having here is a sequence where all of these characters of the town are effectively put in the position of the spectator <laughs> like they are they are sitting at the bar spectating an event they know something wrong is happening like they feel it they know something bad is happening 
and they don't move, they don't get up, they weep. And Mm -hmm. I I find there to be something really important and really interesting going on with what Lynch is doing here, because, you know, the the Coop particularly, he seems to be the most aware, maybe reflects the kind of position that we're in as viewers. And I think Lynch is doing something really interesting, which is that we're watching this horrible thing unfold in front of us with Maddie. Um, and, And of course we know, right? We even have more knowledge than these other characters. We know what's happening and we can't do anything about it. And I mean, this is like the the kind of moral and ethical problem of living in, in late capitalism generally, right? Yes, I mean, everybody can feel it since... Again. Yes, we did. Like, fucking since Trump, right? I mean, this is... We live in a world where we know that things are wrong, and sometimes the best we can do is be empathetic. Like, sometimes that is the best we can often offer. We, we don't, are not in positions where we can run out and fix the world. And I think there is something beautiful to the fact that Lynch is both acknowledging that as like a human reality mm-hmm. that that this empathy is some this is what we have to offer and it matters it's not to be dismissed like it's an important thing and and you know and, and all the worse for people who can't feel it right who can't even do that mm-hmm. um and then uh but then on the other hand that it's kind of a tragedy like this is the tragedy of the world that we live in that we can't do everything we can't fix everything um and what we're left with is the ability to feel sad over it. And this is like, feel devastated more. And this is what we have. And I, I don't know. I think that's, I mean, man, if that isn't like an artistic kind of statement, I, I, and, and like a political statement, but anyway, yes. <laughs> the, I mean, I will, the last thing, actual last thing I will note is that I don't think it's for nothing that, you know, not only are all these characters assembled in the roadhouse, but he's assembled basically all of the quote, good characters. You know, mm, none of yeah. the none of the schemers are there. None of the you know Ben Horn. There's no Josie. There's uh, you know n- no one who's been who's actually murdered anyone. Um, yeah. You know, it's it's really all the the normies of Twin Peaks are, are, are there basically. There's also something really fascinating too about the fact that that those characters effectively are the characters that are left as the ones who loved Laura once you remove her parents Mm -hmm. from the situation, right? I mean, there's something really heartbreaking about that, and we'll have to talk about it next week, but the question of Sarah Palmer and her relationship to all of this as Laura's mother is, I mean, I think is like a really interesting kind of overall aspect of the show that that isn't really dealt with like it's there in the show and it's worth picking apart but but yeah this idea that that laura it's been revealed to the audience that laura has had lost her parents long before she was killed like laura was on her own long before she was killed and it puts a different kind of it puts a different level onto this relationship with these other people who are there, right? James and Donna uh, and Bobby. Like, it gives them uh, maybe more weight or something in their relationship to them, which is really interesting too, right? Because those shows are usually so much about the parents as this kind of, like, unassailable center of the grief process. And it's like this episode completely changes that in a certain kind of way, which is really interesting. Anyway. So, yeah, I guess that's just about it from us. We've gone a, a, a teensy bit long and indulged ourselves, but, you know, that's our that's our prerogative. So <laughs> deal with it, I guess. That's right. Um, we, had to, we, we had to talk about Lynch because we won't get Lynch again until the finale, so we had to give him some space. Yeah, the next few episodes of the podcast are going to be very different. Is all I have well, to the say. next the next two episodes are still the next two episodes are still pretty decent. So yes. if people are like, "Oh, I'm not gonna get through these," like stick with it for a little while. We're still a few episodes away from the from the more grueling from the churning <laughs> suck. Yeah, yeah, uh, suck. yeah. <laughs> yep, uh, yeah. Um, and even when we get to the churning suck, it's gonna at least be funny. I promise. <laughs> uh, 
Anyway, yes. thank y'all for listening. Uh, do rate, review, subscribe on iTunes. We need all those things uh, for our egos, our, our precious, frail egos. And right. um, and uh, do visit uh, com and follow us on Twitter. I'm at Holominds. Kate is at Cinnament. C-I-N-E-M-E-M-E-M. Wait, no. E-N-T. C-I-N-E-M-E-N-T. Yes. I did it. All right. <laughs> and uh, that's it. Thank you all so much for listening. We will be back in a week's time. Mm-hmm.